Amen. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are beautiful beyond description. You are too marvelous for words. And we come before you this morning in awe of who you are. You are the eternal king of the universe. No one and nothing can stand in your way. As the creator of the world, everything in it is yours, and you do as you please. Your presence is too much for us. Your holiness is our light and our life. And in you, we find our direction, the direction for our lives. Most of all, you are a God and the God who saves us. Through your powerful work, we as your people have been brought into your family. Lord, in spite of this great power, we confess that we doubt you too often. The events of our lives cause us to fear the future rather than your ability to provide and to work in our lives. Lord, we are small-minded and we do not grasp the height that you can reach to save and to care for us. Forgive us for doubting you, for, for not loving you as we ought. Forgive us for presuming upon your grace and not giving you the respect that you deserve. When our faith is small and our fear is great, remind us of the great power that you possess, the power that saves. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is true to your promises. We are, are grateful that you have indeed not only saved us, but given us a great inheritance. Lord, thank you for loving us to the extent that you do. We also thank you, Lord, that we are not alone in this world. This morning, we once again thank you, Lord, for Hinson Church in Portland. Uh, we thank you for their generosity in sharing Todd Miles with us last week as he preached to us. And as the church there welcomes back their lead pastor from sabbatical this week, we pray for greater clarity, wisdom, and growth in the ways that you have shown them. Lord, thank you for their willingness to be generous with what you have given them for the sake of your kingdom. This morning, we also pray for ourselves. Uh, Lord, specifically, we pray for Doug and Marianne Gray as they uh, will be leaving, and this is their last Sunday with us. We pray that as they embark on this new season of life, that, that they would find guidance and direction in you. Oh Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness here at Mission, and we pray that you, you would continue to grow them and shape them into your image as they look for a new church. Finally, Lord, we also pray for the word. We thank you for Ryan, uh, for his ministry here at this church. We pray that you would speak through him as a, a, an instrument, Lord, this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Go ahead and have a seat. And as you sit down, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. Got the whole chapter of Joshua 3 today. So in our lives, when we leave the house in the morning, we all have certain things that we bring with us that we make sure we don't forget. And if we forget any of those things, if we don't have them with us, then something feels off. It just doesn't feel right. But you check your pocket, you check your bag, and oh, I brought everything. I'm okay. Go ahead, go through that checklist. What are those things? You've got maybe your keys, maybe your books for class, or your cleats for sports after school. I know everybody's ready to go back to school, right? Your wallet, 
that computer that could get you to the moon that fits in your pocket that we call a phone? How could I forget the morning coffee? Maybe it's your second cup while you're driving. But without those things, something feels off. And I think often we take for granted that the presence of the Lord is with us wherever we go. As soon as we wake up in the morning, the Lord is present with us. He's there. He's active, bringing about his purposes in the world. Sometimes we get to see those purposes in a really dramatic fashion. When we see a conversion or a baptism, we see that baptism, we see that person who's making a commitment to follow God for the rest of their life. Sometimes we see the work of God just in faithful, a long, faithful life of commitment to God and commitment to his people. But God is present in both situations. At this point in the book of Joshua, we get to see God's presence in one of the more dramatic fashions. God's making it clear to Israel that they have not left home without him. The title for the sermon today is The Living God is Among You. Let's go ahead and read chapter 3 now. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. 
the waters coming down from above, stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This gives us our first point from the passage today, preparing for the wonders of the Lord. Our passage starts where chapter 1 ended. The Israelites are camped, but they're pinned. They have the wilderness behind them and the river in front of them. In chapter 1, God tells Joshua, all right, it's time. Cross over the Jordan and go into the land that I'm going to give you. Go over the Jordan and take possession of the land. Then in chapter 2, there's a brief aside. It's a sneak peek into what's happening across the river in Jericho. But chapter 3 comes back to the camp, and we find Joshua rising early in the morning. So if you're a morning person, you can feel good about yourself. You're in good company with Joshua. If your Bible has chapter headings, they aren't inspired, but this one is hard to mess up. The whole chapter is about crossing the Jordan. Then we have a chapter, chapter 4, that's about memorializing the crossing. If we're careful readers, we see that the author wants us to slow down, really take in what's happening here and everything that it means. God's redemptive work is worth meditating on. There's a ton of repetition. Instructions are given, and then instructions are followed. It's building up into this culmination at the end of the chapter when the crossing finally happens. There's a speech about what would happen and then a description about what would happen, or a description when it did happen. And the ancient Israelites would have reveled in this passage because it marked with unmistakable clarity the end of that time of wandering in the wilderness, the punishment for the unbelieving generation. That time of wandering was because they didn't trust God. A whole generation passed because of it. But now a new generation has grown up and is ready to follow God as he leads them into a land of rest, a land he promised them long ago. God led them into the land through a physical, symbolic representation of his presence, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark plays a significant role in this chapter because the Ark represents God's presence with his people. It also represents the covenant between God and his people. So turn with me to Exodus 25. We're going to learn a little bit more about this ark that plays a significant role in this chapter and then also some other places later on in Joshua. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22, we find God's instructions for building the ark. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it 
and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. That's the Ten Commandments. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." Go ahead and look on the screen for a representation of the ark. It was a box about four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet tall. It was overlaid with gold, and they estimate that it may have weighed almost 300 pounds. It contained items that were significant in the relationship between God and Israel. It had the set of the Ten Commandments, the second set after Moses smashed the first set when he saw the Israelites uh, worshiping the golden calf. Then the author of Hebrews tells us that it also contained Aaron's staff, which was involved in a few miracles, and also a jar of manna. The ark had a cover on it called the mercy seat. It had two cherub or angelic beings on it. And this should bring back memories of our study in Revelation, the throne room where angels existed in perpetual worship of the living God. The ark is a symbol, a physical representation of God's presence. It did not contain God or limit his presence. It was greatly revered, but it was not worshipped. It was not God, but it was a gift from God to the people, a symbol of his presence. God's movement leading the people was illustrated through the movement of the ark. And Moses and Joshua and later other kings and prophets would interact with God around the ark. Now, I know some of you hear Ark of the Covenant and you're thinking about Indiana Jones, but I haven't seen that documentary, so I'm not really going to address it. It was not part of my study for this passage, but suffice it to say, the Ark was not a magical talisman. It represented the living God, the ruler of all the earth. It did not have power in and of itself. The Ark was built and carried through the wilderness during the wandering, and when they camped, it would be placed inside the tabernacle, a sacred tent. God's movement and leadership of the Israelites was represented by the movement of the ark. Then later, when Solomon built his temple, the ark was stored in the innermost room of the temple, the most holy place. God's presence and dwelling with Israel was represented by the presence of the ark in the temple. So later in Israel's story, when the ark the ark would disappear. God's judgment on unfaithful, idolatrous Israel was represented by the removal of the ark. It, during the uh, removal of the ark and the destruction of the temple, it showed God's special presence was removed. 
at some point, likely during the Babylonian invasion, the ark vanished from history. So the ark represented God's presence, but it was also a constant reminder of God's covenant with the people. Those tablets with the Ten Commandments were inside. The commandments outlined the way that God's people would relate to him and to each other. They would have no gods besides Yahweh. They would not make carved images of Yahweh. They would not misrepresent him when they called themselves by his name. They would Sabbath. They would honor their father and mother. They would not murder or commit adultery or steal or lie or covet. The commandments were a summary of the covenant between God and the people. So the people were reminded when they watched the ark of that sacred obligation they had to live faithfully toward God. To cross the riverbed of the Jordan behind the ark was to recognize whose power you crossed with. They entered into that obligation, into that covenant, by following the ark into the land. The officers of the camp instructed the people to be ready to move when they saw the ark being carried, but they aren't to follow too close. 2,000 cubits is roughly 3,000 feet, or a more familiar metric for Americans, 10 football fields. There could certainly be a reminder of God's holiness here, but the text gives us an explicit meaning of the space. It's so that the people would know the way to go. They hadn't been this way before. By staying back, everyone could see it, and they would know exactly who was with them, who crossed with them as they went across the riverbed of the Jordan. So the ark was an item of sacred significance, and through that symbol, God was about to lead them into the promised land. So, since it's a sacred symbol, it's no wonder that Joshua tells them in verse 5, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. For the people at this time, consecration very likely involved washing of clothes. But at other times in ancient Israel, consecration involved anointing items with oil or offering sacrifices or avoiding certain foods. People could be consecrated. Furniture in the temple could be consecrated. The spoils of war could be consecrated. Certain spaces could be consecrated. Certain times could be consecrated. Think of the year of Jubilee, and most especially the Sabbath. When God blessed the seventh day in Genesis 1, he called it holy. That was God consecrating that day, devoting it to worship of himself. To be consecrated is to be devoted to the Lord. It's the same concept, and this may seem like a silly example, but in, in your, maybe you have an animal that lives in or around your home, and you have a certain brush that you use for that animal. You don't use that same brush for yourself. If you do, then let's have a conversation about it. <laughs> but it's, a, it's kind of a silly example, but it, it, I think it illustrates really well the idea of something being for common use or sacred use. Holiness, consecrate, dedicate, sanctify, set apart. All of these are drawn from the same idea of how the people of God should be. You are no longer a random person floating down some river of life. You are dedicated to a certain rule of life, a certain way of living, 
because of who you serve and worship. Washing their clothes was not about making themselves fit for God's presence, as if God couldn't stand dirty clothes. It was a signal to themselves. They're going to have an encounter with God. Think about the holy parts of the tabernacle, where they had a certain incense that they would burn. It was this signal. This is a special place that's not like the other places. Their consecration did not merit the crossing. God was going to do this because God is going to fulfill his promises. So Joshua tells Israel, get yourself ready. You're going to see the wonders of the Lord. So there are certainly parts of this text that can seem foreign to us, 21st century Christians, but consecration is not a foreign idea to us. Let's look first at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 up on the screen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This text speaks directly to sexual immorality, but it does something very interesting for us. It relocates that holy space from the ark or the tabernacle or the temple to our bodies. The presence of God is no longer someplace over there where the ark is. The presence of God is where the believer is. So, all of your actions, all of your thoughts, all of your words necessitate consecration. They necessitate devotion to God. Let's look at another example in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here the apostle Paul uses kingdom language to describe the same idea, being moved from a kingdom of common use or uselessness or destruction into sacred, consecrated use. Imagine that brush for the dog being cleaned and repurposed so that it's fit for a greater use. This is the redemptive story of the believer, being transferred from worthlessness into great worth in Christ Jesus, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of the mercy of the Son. So we have our application here, and it's pretty straightforward. Consecrate, or if it's a more helpful word, devote yourself to the Lord. But how do you do that? Run this through a matrix of your life, your time, your talent or energy, your treasure, your words, your attitude toward the people around you. In all of these things, you can show that your life is devoted to the living God that's inside you, that he permeates your life, and that you're on the same redemptive mission you're on. Alternatively, all of these areas can reveal that there's a lack of evidence that God, that you are on that same redemptive mission as God, that you are still um, devoted to common use as opposed to sacred use. We've seen that the people need to prepare themselves, but prepare themselves for what exactly here? Let's read verses 7 through 13 again. Oops, turn back to Joshua 3. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. 
that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Here we gather the second point of our passage today. This is a sign with a promise. Here God, through our text, shows us how Joshua prefigures Jesus Christ. He is exalted to a place at the head of the nation. He's an intermediary between God and the people. God gives orders to his people through Joshua. And Joshua delivers the word of God to the people. A key message he delivers is here in verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you these idolatrous nations that inhabited Canaan. The Jordan River piling up in the distance is not just a miracle of convenience. You know, they had to get across the river somehow. But it's a sign that God would accomplish his purposes in establishing his people in the land that he promised them. It's a sign that comes with a promise. And like nesting dolls, this promise is contained inside another promise, which is contained inside an even bigger promise. For us to understand the book of Joshua, we need to understand these promises and where the book is in the course of these promises. So turn with me Genesis, to Genesis 15. At this point in redemptive history, Abraham is known as Abram. He's living in Canaan, the very land that we see the Israelites moving into now. He's childless. He's living as a nomad. At the beginning of this chapter, God promises him a son. And he says that son would produce a multitude of offspring. We're jumping into this story right in the middle of an encounter with God. Abram has prepared some animals and laid them out ready for a ceremony where two parties making a contract walk through the slain animals and they say, may I be just like, I'll be just like these animals if I break our agreement. If I break our contract, I'll be just like these. And I know it sounds gory and maybe you don't like the sound of it, but just wait until you sign papers for a mortgage because at that point, I think you'd rather do the animal thing than <laughs> sign the papers. Okay, Genesis 15, starting in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's referring to their time in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Here in this brief passage, God tells Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants the land that you are living in now. But first, they're going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be afflicted there. But I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to bring them back here. I'm going to establish them in this land. And to a nomad like Abram, it would have been music to his ears. He would have treasured the security that God promised by giving his descendants a home. This is the land promise that God gave to Abram. And the people of Israel in Joshua were seeing its fulfillment beginning with the piling up of the Jordan River. But this land promise is nested inside another promise, an even bigger promise. Just a couple pages back, turn to Genesis 12. Here God's promising something even greater than just a land for his descendants to live in. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is a bigger promise. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abram. In redemptive history, God promised Abram a son. That son would become a nation. That nation would inhabit the land of Canaan. And through that nation, living in that land, all the families of the earth would be blessed. How will all the families of the earth be blessed? I'm glad I asked. Through Abram's descendants, God would bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this would fulfill the oldest, biggest promise in redemptive history, going all the way back to the garden. That God would redeem humanity through a descendant of Eve. In the garden, where our first mother and father walked in perfect harmony with God and each other, Adam and Eve broke that harmony by taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, this was disobedience, but even more than that, it was setting themselves above God. Their actions showed a lack of faith that God's ways are to be trusted before their own. The fall of Genesis 3 broke that harmony between God and man, between humans and each other. All humanity was set on a trajectory away from God. That's original sin. And to make matters worse, we have each 
participated in that sin personally. Sometimes it's in obvious ways. Sometimes it's in subtle ways. But we all have the impulse in our hearts to set ourselves above God. We lack faith that God's ways are to be trusted above our own. We were born in a world driving away from God, and we added our feet to the accelerator. The Bible uses the word enemy to describe our stance toward God when we're outside of Christ. But God came through on that promise of a descendant of Eve that would redeem us, even ransom us from our position as enemy. Look on the screen at a portion of our New Testament reading for today. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That promise of redemption that God made in the garden flows into God choosing Abraham to be the start of a nation. God promised that nation a land where they could dwell safely. And through that nation, a son would be born who would bring reconciliation between God and humanity. Jesus received the curse of death that belonged to us, even though he never did what we did. He never trusted his own ways ahead of God's. And so God raised him from the dead, never to die again. So when we place our hope in that Messiah, Jesus Christ, we belong to God. He consecrates us. And he gives us the same everlasting life that Jesus has. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the royal announcement of the king of the universe. If this is new to you, or if this is different from what you've heard before, then please find me after the service or find one of the other pastors. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to place your hope in God who set, redempt who set redemptive history in motion. So with all of that biblical context and the gospel in mind, come back to Joshua 3 with me. If you're already a disciple of Jesus Christ, then I have an application for you. That is, endure faithfully. God will fulfill his promises. The Israelites had to wait a long time for this promise to be fulfilled, for the land promise to be fulfilled. I'm sure many generations went by wondering, when do we get to be in the promised land? When do we get to be in the promised land? And we're not that different from them. God has given us a promise. He's promised that he will return to vindicate those who trust him and to pour out judgment on those who don't. Remember, we just went, had 42 sermons about that in Revelation. Many generations since that promise was made have gone by, wondering when is this promise going to be fulfilled. So we can be tempted to toss God's promises aside in unbelief because in our short life, we have not seen that promise fulfilled just yet. But just as God fulfilled the land promise, God will fulfill his promise to return and make all things right. So believer, endure faithfully in trusting God. Don't be like the generation of Israel that doubted him in the wilderness and perished in unbelief. Endure faithfully. God will fulfill his promises. 
Let's turn our attention now to the list of nations in Joshua 3.10. These idolatrous nations stand in opposition to God's promises. And this is a list of nations. They're, they're nations. They're established. They're on their own familiar turf. So driving them out will be no easy task for these traveling, the traveling Israelites. But God is among the Israelites, and he's about to be among these other nations, but not in a way that they're going to like. It's game over for these nations. God says it's as good as done, that their resistance is, is over. Stopping the Jordan was the sign with a promise from the living God that he was among Israel. He would without fail drive out all who were opposed to him. Verse 11 calls him the Lord of all the earth. It highlights his claim over all land and all people. His decisions about allocating land are supreme. And this is something that became apparent to everyone, but not everyone responded in faithfulness. Remember Rahab's speech back in Joshua 2. Go ahead and look on the screen. She's speaking to the Israelites, uh, the Israelite spies, and she says, she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. There's that word devoted again. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab saw all of this, and she changed her ways. She changed her devotion from Canaanite gods to the God of the Israelites, and she and her family, we'll see, will be spared because of it. These other nations see that it's obvious to them that God, that Yahweh is the God of the universe, but they're not changing their ways. They knew they were toast. We know from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that they worshiped idols, practiced all variety of sexual immorality, and they sacrificed children to Canaanite gods. In Deuteronomy 9.5 on the screen, God makes it clear, talking to the Israelites, not because of your righteousness, or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Look there, all in one verse. These nations were not being driven out because of their DNA, but because of their wickedness. And it's connected right there to the land promise that God made. Think back to what we read in Genesis 15. The statement God makes is that the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Only then would he remove them from the land. We look at this list of nations, and without being aware of it, in a sense, they too were waiting for the time of their iniquity to be full. We see the Amorites named in the list of nations here in Joshua 3, verse 10. God waiting on the sin of the Amorites can be extrapolated to the sin of these other nations. Somehow, in some sense, behind the scenes, God restrained his righteous judgment in the time of Abram, but now God sees fit to drive them out of the land. Israel still had a lot of work to do, a lot of obeying to do, 
but you could say that in a way, it's finished. The land was theirs. Okay, last item on the land uh, before we, and the nations before we move on. The nation's rebellion against God, their sexual immorality, their idolatry, sacrificing children to idols, was a stench on the land. Just as God's people consecrated themselves for God's presence, the land must be prepared for his people. All that is opposed to God's perfect ways has to be removed. Tolerating sin would put the Israelites in danger of sinning themselves. They would be tempted to worship these idols, to practice all that immorality, to sacrifice their own children to Canaanite gods. Even as Christians on this side of the cross, we come face to face with our own reality, our own tolerance of sin. We have a grave necessity to cut sin out of our lives, not because we earn salvation through it, but because we recognize that God does not tolerate unrepentant sin. Driving sin out of our lives is evidence of our allegiance. Just as the idolatrous nations are put outside the promised land, God puts all who love and practice evil outside of the new heaven and the new earth. Looking forward to eternity, you must have God as your king to be in the promise of God. In the Old Testament, the land was to be his kingdom, a resting place for his people. Everyone else is put outside. It's the same way in eternity. Okay, let's come back to Joshua 3, and we'll read about the crossing. Joshua 3, verses 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Here we have our third and final point, crossing on dry ground. This was truly a mighty miracle. The Jordan River was flooded. Its banks were as high as ever, but they crossed on dry ground. They crossed right across from Jericho, the great fortified city. The Jordan was a significant barrier between God's people and his promises. Everything in this passage points us to the fact that God is doing it. No one else could do it. It's a demonstration of his power, a reminder that nature is under his control. And it's a demonstration of God's commitment to his promises and to his people. This miracle removes any doubt in anyone's mind that the living God is with Israel. The crossing is an extension of the same redemptive history looking back to the crossing the Red Sea when Israel left Egypt. So we've seen how the crossing on the dry riverbed of the Jordan is connected with the land promise. 
and God takes care of the whole crossing. The people aren't fording the river. They aren't building a bridge. Uh, God even dries the ground so that they aren't slogging through mud. Joshua gave them and us the interpretive key to understand the meaning of the miracle. It's to show them that the living God is among them. As we wrap up this morning and consider the application of this text for our lives today, the temptation is to try to find yourself in the text. And this happens with all historical narrative. Am I Joshua? Am I the priests? Am I the people? What's the Jordan River in my, in my life? I understand the impulse behind those questions, but they should be avoided for two reasons. Number one, it places expectations on God, especially that question of what is the Jordan in your life. We've been given the interpretive key for the miracle. We know what God's promises are. It was to, there to show, this miracle was to show that the living God was among the Israelites and that he would surely drive out the rebellious nations. So if we compare a difficulty in our life to the Jordan River, then we place an expectation on God that he hasn't necessarily promised he would do. It also misses the real point. For us to apply historical narrative well, we have to remember where we are in redemptive history. At this point, Israel is so early in redemptive history. We're on the other side of the cross. So for us, we will see God's faithfulness. We see God's faithfulness that over and over, nothing will separate us from his love. Amen. Turn one last place as we finish. Romans chapter 5, the first part of our New Testament reading from today. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here today, where we are in redemptive history, the barrier between us and God has already been removed. We rejoice because we have been made right with God in Christ. And when suffering comes, we rejoice because of the hope we have in him. We pray and we resist evil in all of its forms while we wait for him to make all things right, but we rejoice because we have peace with God. Our application is clear. Rejoice in peace with God through Jesus Christ. I know many of you are suffering right now. You are suffering physically or emotionally. You have relational pain, financial difficulty. These are real things, and it's tempting to look at the story of crossing the Jordan to mean that God will take those problems away. But all of those things pale in comparison to the barrier of our sin. The reality is that what he has given us in Jesus Christ is so marvelous and wonderful that we rejoice in him when we suffer. God's presence with Israel was made evident through the miracle of crossing the Jordan. That same God makes his presence evident to us 
by pouring out his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. So we can say, just as the Israelites did, that the living God is among us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for showing your long, faithful history of loving kindness and commitment to the redemptive plan you set in motion. We praise you that even when we resist your goodness, you forgive. We ask that you would help us to be more and more devoted to you each day. We want to have every moment of our lives devoted to you. And Lord, if we don't want that yet, then help us get there. And God, we rejoice that we have been justified to you in Christ. We pray that we would treasure that beyond anything else in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.